welcome to the Security Ledger podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this episode of the podcast number 241. And I think we are right now in an important like, point in time in the sense that it's not just smart machines getting connectivity, it's also dumb machines getting connectivity. And, and the difference here is that smart machines are things like your smart TV or, or smart fridge where you have an app and you can somehow control it and there's some benefits to you from the fact that these appliances are online. Dumb devices are the things where you, you don't need them to be online. There is no app. You're not, you're not even told that this thing is online. I don't know, your kitchen mixer or something like that. Mm-hmm. But they will be going online as well because that's beneficial for the manufacturer. Mm-hmm. Not beneficial for the consumer, but right. beneficial for them. For example, then they know where their customers are, which mm-hmm. is beneficial for mul- multiple reasons. Or mm-hmm. they know when they have problems with their devices. Mm-hmm. And, and this is something which is going to happen whether we like it or not, whether we agree or not. Turn back the clock 30 years and the major vector by which malicious software spread was a three and a half inch floppy drive. The floppy disks were also probably how you received updates to the list of programs your antivirus software could detect. These days, things are different. Sure, your computers are internet connected and get their virus updates many times a day via the internet as well. But the population of threats has also grown exponentially along with the population of internet users and internet-connected devices. In the intervening decades, there have been wave after wave of computer-borne menaces, from early polymorphic worms like Anacornikova and I Love You, to globe-spanning threats like SQL Slammer and MS Blaster, to more recent state-sponsored wipers like NotPetya and WannaCry. And then there's the Internet of Things, that global network of connected stuff from home broadband routers to doorbells and light bulbs to home appliances, cars, and medical equipment. As more and more of our physical world obtains an IP address, our societies are becoming more and more reliant on Internet connectivity to power not just smart devices like cars and medical devices, but lots of dumb stuff too, like kitchen mixers and toasters. In the long term, says our next guest, that that could add up to big problems as manufacturers add connectivity, but don't invest in strong security for their devices. Miko Hipponen has been on the front lines of the battle against malware for more than 25 years. For much of that time, he was the chief resource officer at F-Secure, a leading Finnish anti-malware firm where he has worked since 1991. More recently, he's taken on the CRO role at WithSecure, an F-Secure spinoff focused on enterprise security and consulting. And he's the author of a brand new book, If It's Smart, It's Vulnerable, which provides a whirlwind tour of his more than 30 years in information security and makes the case for greater cybersecurity investments in the Internet of Things going forward. Miko and I sat down on the sidelines of the DEFCON Hacker Conference in Las Vegas. In this talk, we discuss his long tenure as a cybersecurity expert and his new book, as well as what threats lie ahead for companies and for consumers. My name is Mikko Hyppönen. I am the Chief Research Officer for WitSecure and the Principal Research Advisor for FSecure. Miko, welcome to Security Ledger Podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me, Paul. It's always great to meet you. It's been 
It's been three years. Yeah, it has been three years. COVID, yeah, COVID, COVID kind of threw all of our schedules off. My favorite story is that you were probably one of the first cybersecurity interviews I did when I took on the beat at the IDG News Service in 2000. Oh, yeah, you were really fresh. To, I was very fresh, both to reporting and to cybersecurity. And you were great throughout my whole career. You've always been somebody who really is able to kind of frame and contextualize things. You've got deep context for this because you've been doing it since like the early 1990s. Well, since forever, yes. Yeah. And so you've got this new book out, which is, um, if it's smart, it's vulnerable. And I, I read it and it, it actually, it's like talking to you. It's like you bring all that context to bear. But before we do that, most of my career, I've known you as, uh, for with F-Secure, the uh, Finnish antivirus company. But then recently, F-Secure has kind of spun off, mm -hmm. and there's this new entity, WithSecure, that, that you are with. Tell us what WithSecure does. All right, so we split into two companies. Basically, the biggest cybersecurity company in the Nordics in Europe split into the biggest and into the second biggest cybersecurity company in the Nordics. So we split into the business side and the consumer side. Now, F-Secure has existed since 1988 um, with various different names, but nevertheless. So we, we use the F-Secure brand, which is better known brand for the consumer part. And then we have the corporate part, the business to business part with our consulting, our, our MDR, EDR, XDR solutions and all that. And that's called WITSecure and that's a new name. So we have now 1700 people working for us split into these two different companies, which are both publicly listed, and I'm on the WitSecure side, although I do spend 10% of my time as an advisor for F-Secure as well. Talk about the the origins of F-Secure. I mean, you, you started working for the company before it was F-Secure, and actually even before it was really specifically an antivirus company. So just talk about kind of the early days and, and, and how um, uh, F-Secure came about. In 1991, I was 21 years old and I needed a place to work so I could pay my bills. So I went working in this small tech startup company with a bunch of young students running a uh, fly-by-night operation which would do anything that would pay the bills. So we, did, we wrote articles for magazines, we did consulting, we, we uh, did tests, we um, did a lot of uh, training and things like that. And throughout the trainings, we started realizing that more and more people this is 1991, started asking questions from us about these new viruses which were spreading on floppies. So, so that got us into thinking, that, okay, maybe we should build something. And, and, and we ended up building a security solution together with our partners. But that was only a small part of the company for quite a while. We had our own CRM product, which we built, which was actually pretty good. We, we had other products like that. But then eventually we divested everything else. And, and then we renamed the company. It was called Data Fellows. And we renamed it to F-Secure to emphasize that this is a security company. And that's how F-Secure was born. It's so funny you mentioned viruses spreading on floppy disks, but but actually that that is how they've spread. Like back in the day, right? If you wanted to load a new application onto your computer, you, you needed to do it with a floppy disk. There was sure. no internet connection. Uh, not just viruses. I mean, updates yeah. for for so all of your applications was coming on floppies. And I mean, for years and years, we were shipping updates like malware definition updates coming out frequently on, on floppies. floppies. Yeah. We had floppy copying machines. We yes. would have days when everybody in the company would just put these floppies in in letters and mail them out. 
Yeah. In fact, we were the first company in the world which innovated this great new idea that you would be able to get the updates over the internet, <laughs> and which which we did, yeah. and then it really revolutionized everything. And of course, then pretty soon everyone else did it as David well. David Perry talks about working at I guess it was probably McAfee back in the day when mm. they would they would actually fax out the 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 hashes oh, for yeah. the for the virus signatures to their pick, customers. Pick, pick a short signature, so short that you can actually type it in if you read it from a fax. <laughs> Different times, different yeah. days. There were so much simpler problems back then. So, I mean, with Secure, I mean, you're, you're really talking about a, a, an important transition that's happened in the industry, which is that, you know, for a long time, for years, uh, desktop anti-malware was like, yes, there were consumer versions of it and enterprise versions of it, but they more or less did the same thing. But incre increasingly, businesses, enterprises are looking for a different feature set than consumers need or want, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, talk about that. Like what, so what, how has the enterprise problem around endpoint security shifted? Well, it's, the, the main difference really is that everything's becoming so networked. So one single endpoint tells you nothing. You want a range of agents looking at what's happening in your environment everywhere on your endpoint computers, on phones, on your servers, on your cloud instances, and then build a compiled picture of everything. And what you really are trying to build is enough visibility that you know what normal looks like. Once you know what's normal, like what, what's the typical day in your organization, then you can start picking up anomalies. Like why are these two servers speaking to each other? They've never spoken to each other before. It started right now. What's going on? And that doesn't necessarily mean that it's an attack or, or, or infection or anything like that. It's just weird. And, and that's something you can work with with companies fairly efficiently, but that's not something you could tell to a home user. No, there's something weird happening on your computer. You, ha you have to be very specific. And, and that's one, one example of how, how they're quite different solutions. And also like the, the consumer attacks tend to be more kind of one-shot attacks, right? You know, you're infecting the system and, you know, whatever, you're uh, implanting malware or you're mining Bitcoin sure, or whatever. Sure, sure. Um, whereas with enterprises, these are multi-stage attacks. There might be multiple objectives, right? That's right. They're living off the land, right? They're not necessarily, right? Yeah, and, and enterprise solutions very typically include consulting as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, d let's do a pen test in your environment. Mm -hmm. We can audit your systems. If there's been a breach, we can do incident management. None of that is relevant to home users. So you talk in your book, it's really interesting, you talk about kind of the early days. You talk about, you have this really great story about crashing your boss's car. <laughs> uh, tell us that story again. <laughs> I think of you, if if you've ever met Miko, Miko's super, you know, super cool, has his shit together. Um, so the idea of young Miko crashing his boss's car is a yeah. great story. When I was doing my first project for the company, which had nothing to do with security, it was a database application I was developing for a factory. I was really late with the project and this was problematic because the, the uh, CTO for the factory was a really angry man. He, he wasn't happy with my performance or with the project or really anything. He was a yeller, as they say. He was a yeller and he, 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 he insisted that, you know, now tomorrow you come over and show what you've done. Like, we, we want to see what you've done. So I worked through the night to try to finish everything as much as I could. I was working alone for the project. It was pretty stressful for a 21-year-old. Yeah. Then I pack up my gear, hop on a tram, drive to the factory. We start the meeting, and then I realized that I've left the demo floppy. <laughs> 
in the floppy drive at my work computer. And of course, that's how we would move data. I couldn't, can't show the demo without the floppy. And he goes furious. He has a big team of his people and he's shouting and he's like, he's, he's 100% certain it's an excuse. Yeah, sure. So I tell him that, no worries, I'll go and get the floppy and, and I will do the demo. I have the software. I'll just hop on a tram and I'll be back in well, three hours. And, and he's yelling more than, no, no, we can't wait. Here, take my car. Go get the floppy. And I take his brand new car, go on the streets of Helsinki and crash the car. <laughs> <laughs> and when I told this story once, I, I remember this, this, this lady asked me that, holy hell, Mikko, that's pretty bad. How on earth did you ever get another job in the industry? And it was so nice to answer that I didn't. I didn't get another job. That's the amazing thing is you didn't get fired. They, didn't they, get fired. Obviously, the demo went pretty well. I oh, don't remember that part. It was the, the day is a bit fuzzy after the crash. Just talk about kind of what we have seen um, as an industry in terms of threat evolution, you know, over the last, let's say, 20 years. And, you know, kind of where things stand right now. 20 years is a good, good amount of time to put this into frame because in, in 2002, nobody was making money with malware. Imagine that. It's, it's hard to, to grasp now, but there was no money making malware in yeah. 2003. It started becoming a thing right around that time. That's yeah. when it started. Yeah. But, but there were plenty of attacks and malware writers doing things, but they weren't doing it. It was about status, malware. kind of. Status or just wanting to destroy things or see how far your malware spreads. Yeah. But the idea of making money was then invented through the cooperation of spammers and botnet masters. They realized that they could use these machines to send spam and spam makes money. But then we've gone through these, these evolution steps, um, keyloggers for credit cards into banking trojans and stealing money from people's accounts mm -hmm. into using botnets for denial of service attacks and extorting money to, to stop the attacks and then ransomware, which is now eight years old. Well, eight years is, is when we started seeing the first Bitcoin using ransomware That yeah, was kind cases. of the evolution, like a, a cryptocurrency was kind of the, the magic ingredient for ransomware because exactly. it, it was getting paid was always, getting the money out was always a challenland. There were plenty of ransomware trying to get the money sent to them through gift cards mm -hmm. or, or these virtual mules, credit cards. Mules. Yeah, but it is hard and it's yeah. easy to catch the guys. But yeah. when, when Bitcoin was becoming mainstream enough, then, then everything changed. And it's funny, the very first time I heard about Bitcoin was in 2012 when we found a sample which was mining for Bitcoin. So we were looking at what, what the hell is this? Yeah, yeah, these weird math functions and this network it's connecting to blockchain. Like what's this? Imagine how cutting edge some of the attackers are. So and imagine how much money they made if they kept the Bitcoins. I mean, something you talk about in your book, and, and it's true, is, you know, bad guys, malware authors, cyber criminals are early adopters of pretty much every technology. Mm -hmm. You know, they are not, well, let's just see if this, you know, proves itself, and then maybe we'll think about using it. They are, I mean, we should all take lessons from them. They're very quick to abandon stuff that isn't working for stuff that is. They're very quick to kind of jettison old ways of doing things and embrace new business models or new technologies. It's hard to be angry at them when they're so clever. <laughs> and yet defenders, um, not so much. It's a different dynamic on the defenders. Not always. I, there's, there's an exception I can think of, which is AI and ML. Because mm -hmm. defenders have been using machine learning for 15 years or more. Mm -hmm. Attackers aren't using it yet. 
um, and we have very limited examples. It's going to happen. It simply hasn't happened yet. Uh, but I think there's a clear explanation, which is that it's such a niche area and the, the lack of skill in the area is so big that the people who know how to use, how to build machine learning systems don't need to go to the dark side. Like, why would you break the law if you don't have If you to? can make plenty of money exactly. legally. Yeah, yes. but obviously that won't last. Right. Which is one of the things we see with ransomware too. I mean, one of the one of the big drivers for many ransomware gangs, let's be honest, is a lack of viable career options and opportunities in the countries that they live in, right? And we're not going to name those countries necessarily, but there are a lot of very talented engineers here who can't walk down and work for Google or Microsoft or, you know, and, and these cyber criminal groups in some ways are the, the best game in town. People with skills but without opportunities is a bad combination. Bad combination, yeah. And this is a... This is not a technical problem. This is a social it's problem. A social problem, yeah. And I, I'm, I'm pretty good in figuring out solutions to, to technical problems. I can't fix social problems. Yeah. Well, some of these are sort of big macroeconomic problems. Yeah, right? How do you create more opportunity? In fact, what's happening in Russia right now, it's probably going to get worse. Yes. Russia is becoming a third world country. Right. And the IT people who aren't leaving will not have the opportunities to match their skills. We saw a massive exodus at the beginning of the war sure. of largely of technical talent. Sure. People Plenty of them came options. to Finland. Sure. Yeah. yeah, I bet. Yeah. Yeah. All right, I want to talk about that in a second. But the title of the book is If It's Smart, It's Vulnerable. And the, and the focus, I mean, you talk about a lot of different things, including your own history and, and history of F-Secure. And the, of the, because and I like to write things where you have like facts and then stories. Yeah. Facts, stories. That's the kind of book That's I like to read. Yeah. The focus, obviously, is, is Internet of Things, of this, you know, the growing population of smart stuff, connected stuff, cars, uh, phones, home appliances, um, and the security implications of that. Talk to us about what do listeners need to know about um, the state of play right now with the Internet of Things and security, and how are these problems any different from the problems that we've seen over the last 20 or 30 years with mm. desktops, laptops, and servers? Right. Well, actually, they're not that different in the sense that in the early days, users, consumers didn't care about security of computers either. Like early on, it wasn't obvious that it's necessary. Today, it's obvious. People, mm -hmm. When people buy computers, they realize that they need security. Sure. If, if it's not built in, it has to be bought. It has to be configured correctly. That's not what people think about today when they buy washing machines. Well, I mean, the most important selling point for home consumer goods is, is price. And I think we are right now in an important like point in time in the sense that it's not just smart machines getting connectivity it's also dumb machines getting connectivity and, and the difference here is that smart machines are things like your smart tv or or smart fridge where you have an app and you can somehow control it and there's some benefits to you from the fact that these appliances are online dumb devices are the things where you you don't need them to be online there is no app you're not, you're not even told that this thing is online i don't know your kitchen mixer or something like that mm -hmm. But they will be going online as well because that's beneficial for the manufacturer. Mm -hmm. Not beneficial for the consumer, but beneficial for them. For example, then they know where their customers are, which mm -hmm. is beneficial for mul multiple reasons. Or they know when they have problems with their devices. Mm -hmm. and, and this is something which is going to happen whether we like it or not, whether we agree or not. And it will have huge implications. And one comparison I have in the book is electric grid and the internet grid. Yes. I mean, electric grid has become completely necessary for our societies. If electricity goes down and stays down, our societies won't function. The same thing will happen with the internet grid. It hasn't happened yet. Yes. I mean, today, net going down is just expensive and painful, but it won't shut down our society. Right. It will. 
And you talk about, I think it was not Petya, about Maersk and the fact that um, when the, I think you interviewed somebody who worked at Maersk and was sure. working for I them think, yeah. for, for not Petya, and that you know he kind of rushed back to the office when he realized something was going on, and they needed to reach out and contact all the Maersk kind of branch offices to sort of assess what the state of play was, but they had no way to contact them because their contact lists on their phones were all synced up to a server that was no longer online. That's fine. And they had no hard copies with phone numbers. Why would you have a hard copy of phone phone numbers? Why would you? This is exactly the kind of things you will only learn by being attacked for real or by running a tabletop exercise. Right. And and that's That's why rehearsing and running exercises makes sense. Yeah. One of the things I think is really interesting is this idea of, um, and you talk about, you know, the, the sort of revolutionary model that Tesla has um, of, with their cars. Uh, so, you know, obviously highly software-driven, um, and Tesla is is collecting just reams of data from their yeah. deployed vehicles. Yeah, it's important to understand that Tesla is not different because it's electric. It's it's different because it's an online platform. Right. That's the real big deal. And and it's a it's a dynamic platform, right? Mm-hmm. Your car is constantly getting updates, and in fact, they're using the data from your own. Uh, uh, cars performance and other cars to tweak and and modify the car in real time. Some of the problems with that are, you know, as we can imagine, you know, single points of failure, you know, this sort of notion of, well, what happens if Tesla's servers go down? What, how will that affect the deployed vehicles? I've heard people talk about, you know, the kind of coming um, B2C ransomware model, right? Where suddenly instead of, you know, extorting businesses by holding their, you know, IT networks ransom, they're going to start shutting down cars in people's driveways and holding, you know, there are many more cust- you know, many more consumers, many more drivers than there are big corporations, right? Um, that these, this population of, of critical but vulnerable devices um, could really become a target. Um, and that, you know, to use the, the NotPetya as an example, how resilient are we to this, right? How ready, if, if, if Tesla's, you know, cloud servers go down, um, how capable are you of operating that vehicle? I, I hate the way you think, Paul. <laughs> That's a really nasty scenario. Yeah, but a, but but a viable, a viable, completely yeah. doable. I hope yeah. I hope no one's listening. Well, and in fact, we know that there was we know that there was an effort to plant malware on Tesla's oh, network, yeah. right? An yeah. IT uh, employee was offered a million IT. dollars. That's right. That's right. I hope he got a million dollar bonus for not <laughs> doing it. I don't know. If they, I don't know if he did. But nevertheless, yeah, this is this is one example of the things that we will be facing. And, and it's really weird how Tesla has this, uh, how, how it gets away by collecting so much information. Uh, I don't think any other car manufacturer, definitely none of the existing legacy car manufacturers could sh- just start collecting everything about what you do with your car and send it back. But Tesla is doing exactly that. And they have a great product as an end result. And they are able to use the telemetry very efficiently. Yes. Now, it's it still, I mean, your car would still work without Tesla servers. But of course, the Tesla servers most likely could brick your devices. Yes, so right. attacks that you described probably are doable. So I really hope no one's listening to this podcast. <laughs> I really hope people are listening to this podcast. No, only, only good people. I guess one of the questions is, do we, and this, you know, I did the panel this morning on, on right to repair, and I think one of the issues that comes up is just that technology moves a lot faster than legislation, right? Technology um, advances and the things we can do with technology and that companies embrace um, far outstrip the ability of lawmakers or regulators to kind of 
assess those and shape laws to, you know, kind of temper some of that, mm-hmm. right? Um, so we talked about John Deere as just, you know, John Deere's business model has changed dramatically in the last 10, 10 years, largely because of the capabilities of real-time cellular internet connections, you know, software and sensor sure. networks. Um, but there are all kinds of problems that have resulted from sure, that. Right? Sure. Um, and, and we have unique problems, especially with things like tractors or cars, which are examples of products which have a really long lifetime, mm-hmm. um, comparable lifetime to, let's say, ICS devices and mm-hmm. factories, which are operated mm-hmm. for decades. Mm-hmm. I actually had a uh, poll on my Twitter followers about how long they thought car manufacturers should provide security patches security for, for patches. cars. Yes. And, and the average, I mean, the, the agreement was that 25 years, which is a really long time. Like, imagine, I mean, the longest time any operating system has been supported by, uh, by, by manufacturers, XP, by Microsoft for 11 years. 11 years. And, and, and that, that was already really long. So, so right. it's, it's not going to happen. We're not going to see that. You, you anticipated my next question perfectly, which is yes. And then when you look at, as you said, the, the dumb stuff, right? Mm-hmm. The toasters, the right. uh, low-end appliances, coffee makers, okay, you know, they're running some version of Android or whatever. Mm-hmm. How long does that company intend to maintain their fork of Android for their coffee machine, right? What are their plans with that? I guarantee you it probably isn't a decade. Yep. And what happens when they walk away from the table or what happens when they fold up shop and they're well, no longer... Well, there is a solution. Yeah. Um, I suggest this in the book, especially in context of, of cars. When it's no longer viable for the car manufacturers to secure, to provide security patches for their cars, they should simply open source the platform. And then third parties will do the fixes needed. Right. Just like when you have a 23-year-old, I'm driving a 23-year-old car right now, I don't take it to the official shop anymore for no, repairs. Yeah, I take it to third party. Third party brake pads, third party oil, all that. It's all possible because it's an open platform. I mean, right. but, but, but we should do the same thing with these smart things as well. Right. Right. Um, and do we see companies doing that? No, we don't. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a problem we have to face, but yeah. this would be the solution. And we do see, we do see incidents of companies kind of d- just the, um, the, the bricking effect. Companies end of lifing uh, products or, or just going out of business yep. and kind of switching the light shift uh, switch off yep. on their servers. You've printed too many pages on your printer. That, We're shutting yes. it out. There was one about, um, there was one about uh, I think, ocular implants where the company just went, went under. What? Um, yeah. Um, there's this company that makes these uh, kind of artificial retinal implants that allow people to kind of see with, with software. Uh-huh. Really cool. But they went out of business and so like these things have stopped working. Okay. And then there were Sonos speakers. There was a fame, there was a very yeah, yeah. You know, profile incident with Sonos speakers where um, you know, people bought Sonos speakers and you know, 10 months later the company said, you know, we're shutting these off. Right. Right. We, you, right. you don't own your devices. You talk about, I mean, you mentioned open source. I mean, you talk about um, uh, Linux and Linus, uh, Torvalds, your, country, your countrymen, and just what a huge impact Linux and, and Git have had in, you talk about this conversation you had, I think, with, with your uncle, yeah. who was lamenting, oh, you know, we thought Linux was going to be the next big operating system, but it never got as big as Windows. And you yeah. were like, actually, no. <laughs> actually, your car runs Android. <laughs> right. Your phone is running Linux. Um, your favorite movies are rendered on Linux farms. So it's everywhere. Your Google and Facebook sessions are running on Linux. Yeah. Yep, it's, 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 it's of, of course, the most common, most popular operating system on the planet, but it's very invisible. 
it's in everything, and and yet there are no big you know Linux logos uh, adorning you know whatever. Yeah. Um, talk about what 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 do you think that has meant from a security standpoint? I mean, Linux is a great piece of software, and Linux kernel is considered to be very secure and safe and well maintained, but. Uh, open source software as general in general has big challenges as we've seen in these software supply chain problems multiple times over the last years bottom line being that many of the projects which are everywhere are being maintained by three guys for free and, and nobody's really doing the testing as it should this be. This is the sort of log for j For example, or, or many of the SSL vulnerabilities we've seen over the years. Now, it's, it's getting better. Everything's getting better, including this. There's much more money being put in by big companies like Google to do proper audits for the popular yeah. uh, distributions of, of tools and, and so on. But I think the thing I really want to emphasize is that security is doing better than ever before situation is better than ever before security for our devices is better than ever before and i know it doesn't look like it but that's the fact i mean you compare the security of what we were running 10 years ago and today it is like night and day yes. the, the problem we have is that the good news are not news we only see the failure so it really looks like situation is dire and there's just you know data breach after another a malware outbreak and ransomware case after another because we only see the headlines when something bad happens mm -hmm. when there's the heroic IT team that works through the night Saturday Sunday night to patch every machine in the organization just in time when Sunday morning attacker scans the IP range and finds no vulnerable machines that heroic effort story. means that no one's gonna know anything nothing happened right. well a, a good point and um, you know, uh, th that's absolutely true, and that's just the nature of, you know, we, we tend to focus on, you know, big tragic events rather than just things going along as we expect them to. Um, I mean, you mentioned the, the supply chain risks, um, and it strikes me that, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot more interest. It, 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 it strikes me that the, the sort of threat landscape is moving left, you know, that there is so much more interest in, you know, attacking you know, development platforms, development tools, mm -hmm. um, you know, discrete open source modules that might give you access to some larger application and then all the customers that use that application. Do you think we move at some point away from, you know, this malware kind of fade, traditional kind of viruses and worms, do they kind of fade from the scene mm -hmm. as we, as these security threats kind of weave themselves more intimately into the, just the, the DevOps cycle and and you know services and I think it's going to happen or something along those lines is going to happen. Clearly, we've seen big big shifts already. The fact that we almost never ever, never anymore find self-spreading malware. We, yeah. they yeah. just don't spread further. So sometimes when we do find them, they are really unusual big cases because they typically get out of out of control, out of hand by the attackers themselves. Um, even the attackers won't be able to control the size of the outbreaks and it's not a good business to be in. It's much better, much better from the attacker's point of view to have controlled spread of whatever they are spamming out. Um, but yeah, I mean, these attacks and the technical nature of the attack continues to evolve as it's been doing ever since we found the first malware cases. Okay, final question. I want to talk about the war in Ukraine or the war on Ukraine. First of all, Finland, obviously, very close to becoming a new member of NATO. Oh, we hope. <laughs> we hope. Uh, I think it's going to happen. U USA has ratified it already. Yes, T we have. Turkey is the problem. Let's see. Yeah. Um, what, do we, um, what have we learned? Um, we promised to be good members. I, I think people are more than confident that Sweden and Finland will be great members of NATO. There was not a lot of debate. Both my grandfathers fought the Russians. Yeah. 
Um, what, what should we know about, um, what, what have we learned from the um, attack on uh, Ukraine, uh, specifically what we've seen in the cyber realm since February 24th? I know there was an initial kind of wave of wiper attacks and, and uh, there was an attack on a, a satellite, U.S. satellite mm-hmm. uh, provider. Um, but what, what are the kind of lessons out of that conflict? What have we learned about the role of cyber ops in uh, kinetic warfare? One lesson we learned is that Ukraine is the best country in Europe, maybe the best country in the world, to defend their networks against Russian nation state attacks. They've had a lot of practice. Exactly. That's the reason. (laughs) Eight years practice makes you pretty good. Um, Of course, they've had a lot of help, but but seriously, that's one of the things. Another thing we've learned is that Russian generals seem to think that cyber only plays major part in the preparation for war. But once missiles start flying and bombs start dropping, cyber goes into background. That's how they've played it. I mean, clearly they would have had more capabilities, which they haven't been using. Uh, Most likely because the the generals in lead don't think it's a good idea or don't don't think it makes a difference. Something like that. They are not doing it. And that's a bit surprising. Me and many other analysts were expecting much more activity from from Russia. The activity that we have seen, um, much of it has been not from the government, but from civilians and and these hacker groups or or criminal gangs. Well, yeah, and and just definitely for money hackers, but also patriotic hackers. For example, Finnish House of Parliament's website was taken down last, well, actually during this week, the DEFCON week, uh, by a group called No Name 57, which announced on their Telegram channel that, you know, Finland is applying for NATO, we're going to take down your websites. What do you think? There, I mean, just speaking as a Finn, and you know, what what is this? What is the sentiment in your country? And what do you think? Um, uh, does this change Finland's thinking around cyber preparedness and cyber ops? Or you know, I mean, fin- Finland obviously is. Mm very attuned to what's going on in Russia, very attuned to what's going on in the Baltics and the whole region. Um, do you think any lessons, any sort of lessons they've taken away from, from the conflict? Well, we've increased our budget for cybersecurity right after the war started, for obvious reasons, yeah. as, as we've increased other preparedness as well. Um, we have a mandatory draft in Finland, all males go to army. I, I, I'm a captain in the Finnish reserves myself. Um, and whenever uh, we, we uh, you know, take people into reserve, we try to use their civilian skills yeah. in the role they play in the, in the reserves as well. And that's pretty handy, which means we have a pretty big army for a small country um, when we take all of our reserves into use. And, yeah. and I think we're able to um, hold our own, let yeah. me just put it like that. Miko Hibben, uh, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us. The book is If It's Smart, It's Vulnerable, and um, they can buy it online. They can buy it on Amazon.com. Or, or I wasn't going to say that. I was going to give them a choice, but Amazon.com, of course, is one place where <laughs> you can a buy the book. There's if a website. It's, if it's smart, it's vulnerable.com. Okay. Um, great. Miko Hipponen is the Chief Resource Officer with WithSecure and the author of the new book, If It's Smart, It's Vulnerable, available now on Amazon.com.